best hair and skin product out there. Check out this review from Stacy B about skin, hair, and nails from Heart and Soil. Stacy says, I have tried multiple hair and skin vitamins over the course of 10 years. I've damaged my nails from getting fake nails at salons for my wedding, and my nails have never recovered from having the acrylic taken off. I've tried multiple supplements. None of them worked in those 10 years. And after about six months of use of heart and soil products, specifically skin, hair, and nails, my nails are fully intact and harder than ever. There's no more peeling and they grow like crazy. My hair is also showing lots of regrowth. The little hairs are kind of annoying and tempting to cut, but I'm hoping this will be a sign of future thick hair. I love this product, Skin Hair and Nails, and it is worth every penny. Our Skin Hair and Nails from Heart and Soil has trachea and scapular cartilage in it, which I'm really excited about. These special types of cartilage have been studied by John Pruden and found to have some really interesting peptides that help with wound healing, skin hair and nail regrowth, and overall connective tissue benefits. So this is really high quality collagen, not a huge fan of the low quality collagen uh, and hoof and hide cartilage, but that's better than nothing, but I'm really stoked and proud of what we make at Heart and Soil with our skin hair and nails. And then this one title is Powerful Benefits. This is on our histamine and immune from ANT. Never felt healthier in my life. Thanks to the combination of products I ordered, it is absolutely astounding for me personally. I am so thankful I was introduced to this way of being in this way of life. It's never going to be returning back to the old ways. Every time I think of all the seed oils and the nuts, I remember all the odd aches and pains and hurts and mood problems. And I'm loving having this much energy at age 59. I feel better than I did at age 30. I'm grateful. Thank you. Keep up the good work. And is taking histamine and immune and beef organs, two other amazing supplements that we make at Heart and Soil Supplements. You can find us at heartandsoil.co. You guys know I'm a huge fan of organs. Get them fresh if you can. If you can't get them fresh, get them desiccated. I think it's a great other option. All of our supplements are grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised. You can find us at heartandsoil.co. That is where you will start your journey to reclaim your birthright to radical health. This week's podcast is another Ask Me Anything. I wanted to address some key questions that came up this past week. And in previous weeks, specifically on this podcast, I talk about fruit and fructose and try to dispel the fructose fear-mongering and show a real clear difference between fructose in isolation, which many people have talked about, Rick Johnson including them, but if you look at the medical literature, what's fascinating here, the evolutionary context is critical yet again. And what we learn is that fruit in the whole matrix form presents fructose to our body in a way that seems to create a physiologic response that is different than fructose in isolation. So important. Then I go on to talk about omega-3s and fish oils because it seems insidious the number of people who just keep touting the, the benefits of tons of fish oil. But what we find is that maybe that's not so good for humans, nor is it evolutionarily consistent. And guess what? You can get plenty of meat. Uh, you can get plenty of omega-3s from animal fat. And last but not least, I talk about nutrients in an animal-based diet. Both Joe Rogan and Ben Patrick were talking about an animal-based diet this week. They're both doing it. I'm good friends with Joe and Ben. And it was awesome to hear them thriving on this diet. Some people get concerned. What about nutrient deficiencies on this? If I put it into chronometer or XYZ, tracker, uh, then it's going to show me that I have these deficiencies. I break all of those down and tell you the case for why I don't think an animal-based diet is going to be deficient in anything except 
stinking, sucking. <laughs> Animal style is just deficient in badness because it doesn't have any badness because it's going to help you thrive in a big way because it's species appropriate and evolutionarily consistent. So I believe. Okay. Thank you to the sponsors for this podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. You can also leave me a review on Spotify. It helps me spread the message. Thank you for that. It's a big part. This podcast is free and I appreciate the sponsors. I want to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. They are the sixth generation family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. The mothership, the place I would go during the zombie apocalypse because they have green pastures with delicious meat and organs and pigs and turkey and guinea and soy and corn-free chickens that they did at our request and soy and corn-free eggs and organs. Did I mention organs? They have all kinds of good stuff there. You can find them at whiteoakpastures.com. It's all grass-fed, grass-finished. It's delicious. The ribeyes are to die for. You can use my code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. White Oak Pastures will change your life. Supporting regenerative agriculture is critical and essential in today's world. You know what else is critical and essential in today's world? Getting your blood work checked. Uh, Not being ignorant, not being unaware is perhaps the best word of where your male hormones are, of where your female hormones are, of where all of it is, okay? This is super important to know. And did you know that across the globe, healthy sperm counts in men have dropped 50% in the last 40 years? Hormonal imbalances, low testosterone, they're commonplace. One in four men over 30 has low testosterone, probably because they eat seed oils and garbage food and they don't eat organs. Symptoms are horrible, low energy or fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog. I can't even read them. They're so painful to think about. Let's Get Checked is a company with a mission to make professional health testing easily accessible. I love democratization. I love freedom of testing. They're fast, affordable, confidential at-home test kits, including male hormones, will help you get your levels checked from the comfort of your home. Uh, Let's Get Checked customers get 20% off by using my code. You can go to trylgc, trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd. Trylgc, trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd, and get 20% off your order. How does it work? You choose your test online. It gets delivered to you in discrete packaging. You return your sample. You collect the results at home. It arrives to the laboratory. Your confidence of results available in a secure online account in two to five days. You get five hormone levels if you're doing male hormones, testosterone, sex hormone, binding globulin, prolactin, estrogen-free engine index. You get a consultation with a nurse after your results are reviewed by a physician over the phone. They are CLIA approved at the highest level of accreditation. I used them at my home in Texas. I thought it was super easy and very convenient. I got a CRP, I got lipids, I got male hormones, and I believe I got a CBC. It was great. You can check them out. Try LGC, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com front slash carnivoremd. That's T-R-Y-L-G-C.com front slash carnivoremd. This podcast has been sponsored by Let's Get Checked. We appreciate them. Thanks, Let's Get Checked. And last but not least, another company, that is a force of nature, is force of nature. (laughs) You can find them online at forceofnature.com. We are doing the Heart and Soil X Force of Nature Animal Base 30 this month. You can sign up for that at animalbase30.com. It is free. We are so proud to have Force of Nature as partners for this. And as a perk for being a Fundamental Health Podcast listener, Force of Nature is offering offering 15 bucks off your purchase if you enter the code CARNIVOREMD22 at checkout. Remember, that is a capital C and a capital M. D, because I went to medical school and earned it. You got to capitalize it. No, that's just what they put in the password and stuff. Uh, Okay. They are a meat-based company in Austin, Texas. They offer regenerative, 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised, wild-caught meats, and traditional proteins. 
beef, chicken, wild game like venison, elk, boar, and my favorites, their ancestral blends, blends, not bends, blends that contain 7% organs. They're delicious. The reviews on the website are spot on. It's a super easy way to get organs into your diet. The possibilities are endless. They are a good company. I know the CEO, Robbie's been on the podcast. We talked about regenerative agriculture, all kinds of amazing stuff going on there. They are good people to support and you should be doing your due diligence to look behind the curtain at how food brands are actually producing what you eat, how it's affecting your food and your health. You cannot avoid voting with your dollars. You must vote with your dollars. You are either voting for multinational corporations, Agrigenta, Monsanto, et cetera, or you are voting for regenerative agriculture. And I know which one I think is the solution. Okay, Force of Nature is available. Again, online at forceofnature.com. They ship directly to your door in a few days. You can get 15 bucks off with Carnivore MD 22 at checkout. That is a capital C, a capital MD 22. All right, guys, on to this Ask Me Anything podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Join us for Animal Base 30, animalbase30.com with heart and soil and force of nature. Love you all. Stay radical, stay free, stay exploring. I sound like a freaking North Face ad now, but go do something adventurous. Get out, be free, break the dogma and take some risk and discover something. What is up, truth seekers? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I am your host, Paul Saladino, otherwise known as Carnivore MD, but many of you know this already. There was an exciting thing that happened this past week. Um, I'm going to continue the tradition in January during this animal-based 30-month with Heart and Soil of doing question and answer-based podcasts for many of the podcasts, including this one. And I want to address many of the currently most interesting and pressing concerns and questions. And with that in mind, there was an interesting thing that happened this week on Joe Rogan's podcast. We will splice in a section of his podcast from this week with Ben Patrick, my friend, Knees Over Toes Guy, who's also been on this podcast in the past. If you want to go back to Knees Over Toes Guy's podcast, Ben Patrick's podcast on fundamental health, we'll put a link in the show notes to that one. I love Ben Patrick. He's influenced the way that I work out. Many of the movements I do significantly, I do sissy squats, I do Nordic curls, I do reverse Nordics, I do stuff with the monkey foot device, and I have a tib bar, which I love. Ben was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Joe asks him about his diet. And as you'll see in the clip, which we will splice here, Ben talks about eating an animal-based diet. I'd spoken to Ben about this. He's doing it basically because I've recommended it and at my recommendations. And then Joe chimes in and says that he's been doing an animal-based diet this month, which is freaking awesome. And Joe and Ben are both loving it. They're both thriving. Incidentally, Joe goes on to note that his workouts during a strict carnivore diet, which was ketogenic, no carbohydrates were flat, but by including fruit and honey, he feels much better. Ben echoes this and says that despite the fact that my moniker is carnivore MD, um, one of the things that I did for Ben was interest him in getting fruit in his diet. And he feels like this is a great intervention for many athletes, a great source of carbohydrates for many athletes. And Ben and Joe talk about how much they love fruit. So we'll go ahead and roll the clip from that podcast now, and then I will comment on it afterwards. And then my dessert every night is fruit. So I basically eat meat and fruit. That's it? No vegetables? Ba basically, I I kind of like vegetables. I'll have some here and there. Um, again, I'm not studying this to the degree that I'm studying the exercise. Um, I saw you're doing meat and fruit this month. That's the whole month. I feel I, fucking great. I did it basically this whole last year. So to me, it was kind of like, 
I used to think fruit equals bad, you know? Yeah. Um, guys like Carnivore MD put out good data on it. Yes. So, again, I'm not pretending to be an expert. Right. No, and, it, Paul's, uh, Paul Saladino, his information is excellent on this He stuff, actually right? got me to see if anyone, just to give an example, like, he's called Carnivore MD, but I actually really realized the value of fruit mm-hmm. from him. Yeah. So I, I just have an open mind on it. I'm not, I'm not against someone being a vegan or anything like that. I, I respect everyone's diet. I'm trying to see what works for me, what I feel good on. And one thing I'm really passionate about is the fruit for dessert because I find that really helps people get off foods they don't want to have. Mm-hmm. And when you start to have good fruit, because most of us go our whole lives, we never have like good fruit. You know what I'm talking about? We grew up thinking fruit is like a soggy piece of cantaloupe. Mm-hmm. When you have like really good fresh fruit, it's delicious. It's delicious. Yeah. And so I find Very that good regardless of what diet someone is on, that's the most. That's the only. The only thing I would say I'm an expert on is how to not eat cheat meals. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? That's the only thing I've done different. Paul's work, which what's really interesting, is the highlighting of the fact that if you look at nature, that these brightly colored, delicious things are what nature wants you to eat. These plants essentially want you to eat their oranges. They want you to eat their apples. That's how they spread their seeds. People eat them or animals eat them, and then they shit out the seeds, and that's what actually helps them grow new trees. And this is just a part of the process in that they don't develop these protective chemicals that some fruit, some vegetables have. And so what he's trying to highlight is that there's a lot of things that people eat that have some kind of protection against predation. And we know that this is a thing, right? We know that this is a thing with plants that there's um, plants, I think it's the acacia tree, um, that will actually, if you can play the sound of a grasshopper eating leaves next to the tree, they will emit a chemical that makes their leaves taste like shit. And they've done this Google this because this is, this is pretty important. It's really wild stuff. For there's things that happen with plants where they're not exactly sure what's being communicated, but they know that if, for say, a giraffe is uh, upwind and this giraffe is eating leaves, as the wind from the giraffe, if the wind from the giraffe eating leaves comes down towards these other trees, those trees will emit a chemical that changes the flavor of their leaves and makes them taste horrible to discourage predation. And that his perspective, and I don't know if he's accurate, but it's fascinating and he's a very, very intelligent guy. It makes sense. It's logical. What he's saying is that if you look at animals, all animals essentially, most animals are edible. Very few plants are edible. It's a small percentage of plants that are edible for human beings, but almost all plants I didn't are. I know that. The plants don't have the defense mechanisms that the animal has. The animal's defense mechanism is it runs away from us. Like if you look at a deer, they run away from us. Fish, run away from us. Those things, they run, and that's how they stay alive. What plants do is they d- develop these defense chemicals, and these chemicals taste like shit, or these chemicals... Can pro, they can cause animals to not want to eat them. They, they discourage predation. And what he believes is they also create inflammation or some sort of a chemical reaction in the human body that could lead to some autoimmune disorders. 
including things like nightshades, which uh, I love tomatoes. They're fucking delicious. But he had this whole thing about them, about the chemicals, the oxalates in different forms of vegetables like kale and, and other, other vegetables that we think of being healthy that might not be good for you. However, there's other doctors that look at these chemicals and look at these things and say, no, these, when you eat them in the proper quantities, are good for you because they have a hermetic effect. They have an effect similar to the effect that you get from being in a sauna. Like if you're in 185 degrees for the rest of your life, you're dead, mm. right? But if you're in the 185 degrees for 20 minutes, it's actually very good for you because your body produces these heat shock proteins in response to that heat. So this, this is where the debate sets in. And this is where I'm not sure who's correct. But what I do know is when I eat nothing but meat and fruit, I feel fucking great. So it seems to be working for me. However, honestly, when I think about it, I go, well, I think what's going on is that I'm cutting out bread and pasta and, um, and most bullshit and that and processed foods. I think that might be what's making me feel better. There's I a lot of truth in all of that, though. Yeah. Someone should have their own choice on it. And I think for me, the reason I go meat, fruit, and then I leave the vegetable optional. So I don't I don't say, oh, I'm not allowed to eat vegetable. You see what I mean? Yes. I leave the vegetable optional. Number one is because the meat and the, and the fruit, and even like avocado is a fruit. And these things have a lot of calories. So mm -hmm. it's very real to me that those are going to like sustain my body. Yes. They, have a lot, they have a lot of calories. They can sustain my body to put out effort. And I crave those most. You see what I mean? I, I crave the meat and the fruit more than the vegetable. Yeah. But like you said, there's some vegetables that if I like, I'll have them. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I figure if I'm eating meat, fruit, and some vegetables, that's still going to be so much better than the average person's eating. You it's know? definitely better than the average person. I don't ever feel bad when I eat vegetables, though. This is why it's, it's confusing to me. Yeah. Like if I eat a bowl of pasta, I feel like shit. I feel great while I'm eating it. The, the mouth <laughs> yeah, pleasure yeah. is amazing. Yeah. You know, I love delicious food. Yeah. But if I eat a salad, I don't feel bad. Yeah. I enjoy the salad, but afterwards I don't feel bad at all. So, I mean, is there a long-term effect from a, a cumulative effect of whatever, you know, defense chemicals these plants release? I don't know because I've only heard Paul talk about that. And I yeah. don't – I would like to see someone debate him who is logical and objective and reasonable and well-educated. Yeah. That, that would be an interesting conversation. And that's Not why someone who's ideologically like, connected to eating vegetables only, yeah. but someone who has looked at this like very yeah. from an analytical perspective, like looking yeah. at all the data that's currently available. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And for yeah. me, at the end of the day, I look at everyone is trying to do their best out yeah. there. And so like, for, like Paul got me to actually eat more fruit mm -hmm. instead of eating junk. You see what yeah. I mean? So, like, that's a huge win. That's a huge takeaway for me that I would tell anyone. And I've helped a lot of people now with, like, here's my num – like, my only diet advice I have for someone else is try fruit for dessert at night instead of <laughs> stuff you know you don't want to put in your body. That's great advice. That's all I have. Yeah. Like, after all this time, that's the only advice I personally have for someone. Yeah. I don't have – I mean, I've never heard a single argument against fruit. It's just, it tastes great. It's good for you. It's filled with vitamins, especially, you know, like things like yeah. oranges and pineapple and stuff, papaya and mango. It's yeah. just like, how is that bad? Like, how can it be? Yeah. It's so fucking delicious. But I did at one point actually think that like fruit was bad just because it was like sugar, sugar. and carbs. Yeah. But I think for me, it was realizing that, well, wait a second. But meanwhile, I'm binging on pizza at night or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I felt so much 
I feel like my internal health has been a lot better making fruit my dessert, you know? Yes, I think so. I, I mean, there's um, I mean, there's so much variety that you could choose from from fruit, too. This is another great yeah. aspect of it. You, you have just so many different kinds of fruit to choose from. Yeah. You won't, you won't get bored eating it. When I did uh, the carnivore diet before, um, I would call what I'm doing now more animal-based because I'm doing it from Paul's uh, descriptions which is uh, I will still eat fruit, and I will still eat honey and a few other things. But when I did it before, I did an entire month with nothing but meat. Wow. I ate mostly ribeye steaks, and if I ate lean game meat, I ate, like, bacon with it. Oh, wow. And maybe some eggs. Um, the difference there was my workouts were a little flat. There's no there's no flatness to my workouts with the fruit. When yeah. uh, Keeping the fruit in and keeping the carbohydrates from the fruit and the sugars mm-hmm. from the fruit, I don't have any problem with workouts. Even yeah. fasted workouts are better. Yeah. Like today I worked out fasted before I got here. Yesterday I worked out fasted before for uh, podcast. No issues at all. No no problem with energy levels. But like before when I did nothing but meat, like in heavy endurance work and um, like rounds in the bag and things like that, I started to really drag ass. Like yeah. I was like, oh, this is you know, like I was forcing myself into it. Yeah. Whereas I feel with fruit very energized. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we're all coming from different lives we've had. Different mm-hmm. things might be detoxing. We all might react differently to different diets. Sure. But I, I think what you're on now, I mean, that would be my vote if I'm coaching an athlete is to add in the fruit. Yeah. Okay. So what is amazing here is that Ben and Joe are both thriving on an animal-based diet of organs, meat, fruit, and honey. <clears throat> and um, there was some pushback. Anytime we talk about fruit on an animal-based diet, people come out of the woodwork and say, but fruit is bad for you because we know fructose is bad for you. And I've answered this question before, but I wanted to reiterate this because I thought that it would be very relevant temporally to what just happened on Joe's podcast. So this is my concern with the fructose fear-mongering is that much of this, in fact, all of this concern about isolated fructose is just that. It's concern about isolated fructose, fructose that is not found, fructose, fructose, you say tomato, I say tomato, fructose that is not found in a food matrix. And those appear to perform very differently in research studies, many of which I will show you during this um, during this podcast. So this is a very important thing to contrast that fructose in isolation does not perform equivalently to fructose in fruit when we look at research studies. Yet nutritional reductionism is alive and well, and so often fruit is vilified because it contains fructose, but in many studies, uh, fruit has a very positive effect on the endothelium, on the nitric oxide system, et cetera, et cetera. So let's start with a study by Robert Lustig, which is often cited as one of the dangerous indications for fructose. And I think this is a very interesting study to consider, but um, again, we will specify that this it definitely is fructose in isolation. So for those of you who are watching, I'll do a screen share. For those who are not, I will read the titles of these studies. And if you would like, you can go to YouTube and see the actual illustrations or the studies in video, but otherwise you can look them up on your own. This is a study which um, effects of dietary fructose restriction on liver fat, de novo lipogenesis, and insulin kinetics in children with obesity. Again, Robert Lustig is one of the authors and perhaps one of the most well-known popularizers of this concept. This is an interesting study. It says compared with baseline on day 10, 
Liver fat decreased from a median of 7.2% to 3.8%. Great. The um, de novo lipogenesis, the DNL area under the curve, decreased from 68% to 26%. De novo lipogenesis is the biochemical process in the liver by which fructose is made into fat. So that is not a good thing. Generally, it happens at a very, very low rate in humans. Uh, and again, this is not the DNL rate. It is just the DNL, the de novo lipogenesis area under the curve. And the insulin kinetics improved. Um, these changes occurred irrespective of baseline liver fats. So the conclusions are short-term, nine days, isocaloric. So same calories, no calorie restriction here. Fructose, fructose restriction, decreased liver fat, good thing. Visceral adipose tissue, good thing. And de novo lipogenesis, all good things. And improved insulin kinetics in children with obesity, these findings support efforts to reduce surrogate consumption. So this is a very striking study. And if you look here, I perhaps should have given a little bit more detail. There were 41 children in the study, ages nine to 18 years old, all had meals provided for nine days. So they had essentially significantly decreased levels of processed sugar in the diet, sugar sweetened beverages, et cetera, which was the main intervention here. All of their meals got provided and they had significantly improved outcomes. Now, there are some in the space who would say that pure fructose, sugar, table sugar is not bad for humans. But studies like this make me think, okay, here we're taking 41 children ages nine to 18, and we are decreasing their consumption of these sugar-sweetened beverages. It could be something else in the sugar-sweetened beverages, but I'm pretty sure that table sugar, which is glucose and fructose, it is a sucrose is glucose and fructose, it's a disaccharide. So it's about 50% fructose is a problem for humans. But studies like this are what get highlighted when people say fruit is bad, because we know, in quotations, we know that fructose is bad for humans. And the rest of the studies are left out, which may show that fruit or fruit containing fructose, fructose present in a food matrix, actually has a different effect in human physiology. So for instance, this is an interesting study um, that I will share. The title of this one is Orange Juice or Fructose Intake Does Not Induce Oxidative or Inflammatory Response. I focus on the orange juice. I find it interesting that fructose intake did not induce oxidative uh, response in this one. I would not recommend fructose intake, but they compared it. Four groups, eight subjects each, normal weight, were given a 300 calorie drink of glucose, 75 grams, fructose, 75 grams, or orange juice, or water sweetened with saccharin, a control group to drink, and then blood samples were taken. Um, they found that caloric intake in the form of orange juice or fructose, fructo fructose does not induce either oxidative or inflammatory stress, possibly due to its flavonoids content and might therefore represent a potentially safe energy source. What they don't say in the conclusion, but you can read here in the results, is that the glucose, which is a molecule that very rarely gets vilified, the glucose sweetened beverage actually did induce oxidative stress and an inflammatory response. So what they say here is that there was a significant increase in reactive oxygen species generated by mononuclear cells, polymorphonuclear cells, and in NF-kappa B binding in mononuclear cells over baseline two hours uh, after glucose intake. These changes were absent following fructose, orange juice, or water intake. There was significantly lower reactive oxygen species generation and NF-kappa B binding following orange juice, fructose, and water compared with glucose. So that's interesting to me. Orange juice, pretty darn safe in that study, and glucose doesn't look very good. Well, nobody is really vilifying glucose because 
glucose is in everything. You're going to get glucose if you're getting any sort of starch in your sweet potato, any sort of starch in your white potato. Again, people ask me this all the time. I'm more a fan of sweet potatoes than white potatoes, but I'm not generally a fan of any of the roots. Even sweet potatoes have defense chemicals, ipomia marone being one of them. I don't know if I've ever talked about that on the podcast specifically, but I can talk about it in the future. Maybe I'll throw in a little nod to that at the end of this one, but even sweet potatoes have defense chemicals that can bother some people. Remember the framework for which I uh, that I use to think about this dietary approach or all dietary, approach, dietary approaches is if you are thriving, do not change a thing about your diet. But if you are not thriving, it is a good thing to question your assumptions and to consider the fact that many of these plant chemicals may be harming humans. This is kind of the, the basics, the underlying nuanced message that I'm trying to get across to people. So let's look at a few more. And I will screen share this one as well. Orange juice versus vitamin C. Everyone loves vitamin C, but here they compared orange juice versus vitamin C. The effect on hydrogen peroxide induced DNA damage in mononuclear blood cells. Again, if you ask most people on the street who have been influenced by fruit fear or who are scared of fructose, and you ask them about hydrogen peroxide induced DNA damage, most people on the street won't know what that is. But let's be honest, most people in the health community would say, oh yeah, that's definitely going to be bad for your DNA. But if you look at the results of this study, um, you know, DNA damage significantly decreased three hours after BOJ, which is blood orange juice intake, remained constant at 24 hours. No effect of the C drink or the S drink, which is the sugars drink, was observed. So giving somebody vitamin C in a drink the panacea, which we all love, but I'm not super excited about. I don't think it's magical like so many do. Didn't do anything for hydrogen peroxide-induced DNA damage in mononuclear blood cells, but orange juice did. Again, where is the damage from a fruit juice in this study? I don't see it. Um, yet another one we can look at here involving, again, this one is um, blood orange juice. And again, this one is looking at endothelial function of blood red orange juice. The effects of red orange juice intake on endothelial function and inflammatory markers in adult subjects with increased cardiovascular risk. So this one is a subset of people with increased cardiovascular risk. There were 19 non-diabetic subjects um, aged 27 to 56. This was randomized, placebo-controlled, single-blind crossover. Again, all the studies I've shown you are interventional studies, no epidemiology thus far. There was a seven-day consumption of blood red orange juice, and it improved endothelial function. Endothelial cells are the cells lining your blood vessels. They are inside the arteries and veins of your body. These are critical little buggers, and they have an enzyme in them called ENOS, endothelial nitric oxide synthase. And that enzyme is critical because it makes nitric oxide, as the name might suggest. And that is an important molecule for endothelial function and blood vessel dilatation proper vascular health. Now, you'll see here endothelial function measured as flow-mediated dilation significantly improved and was normalized after one week of red-orange juice consumption. Again, here's fruit in juice, which many would vilify, acting pretty well in the human body. Similarly, concentrations of high-sensitivity CRP, IL-6, which is interleukin-6, that is a cytokine, TNF-alpha, another cytokine, decreased. The P was less than 0.001 red orange juice had no significant effect on nitric oxide plasma concentrations, but I'm going to bet, but I'm going to bet that it had a significant effect on the nitric oxide concentrations in the endothelial cells or on ni endothelial nitric oxide 
synthase in these um, cells and it, it did affect endothelial function in a positive way. So there's something going on here, even in with fructose containing foods in a food matrix, you see positive effects in the human body. So where is the damage from these food that so many are concerned about with fructose? I want to move over to honey because this is one of my favorite foods and highlight a study that I have always found quite fascinating. Title of this study says a lot. Substituting honey for refined carbohydrates. So essentially they're substituting honey for refined sugar protects rats from the hypertriglyceridemic, the increasing triglycerides and pro-oxidative effects of fructose. This is pretty cool. So in the abstract, the first line is to say, recent findings indicate that a high fructose diet has a pro-oxidant effect in rats. As we've seen on the previous studies that I've just shared, fructose contained in fruit juice, red orange juice in these multiple trials did not have a pro-oxidative effect. So what's going on there? What's the difference? This is the, the thing that we need to dig into. This is what we need to think about that fructose present in a food matrix will behave differently than fructose found in whole foods. Uh, than fructose found in isolation, excuse me. So compared with those rats fed fructose, honey fed rats had a higher plasma alpha tocopherol. That's one of the uh, forms of vitamin E, a higher alpha tocopherol to triacylglycerol ratio, lower plasma nitric oxide uh, concentrations, and a lower susceptibility of heart to lipid peroxidation. Very interesting. Excuse me, I misspoke there. This is NOx is plasma nitrite and nitrate, not nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is involved in the dilatation of the endothelial cells. Nitrite and nitrate are often associated with negative outcomes. So they had lower plasma levels of nitrites and nitrates, lower susceptibility. This is the highlight of heart to lipid peroxidation. I'll repeat that. They had lower susceptibility of the heart, presumably heart muscle cells or heart cell membranes, to lipid peroxidation when they ate honey, when they eat honey. Further studies are required to identify the mechanism underlying the antioxidant effect of honey, but the data suggest a potential nutritional benefit of substituting honey for fructose in the human diet. Again, this is all to highlight fructose found in the food matrix appears to behave differently than fructose in isolation. Coca-Cola, table sugar, probably very bad. Raw organic honey appears to be good in humans and rats. I'm not going to show the studies, but I've talked about it in the past that raw organic honey, especially darker raw organic honey has nitric oxide precursors. When you give this to humans in an interventional manner, you can see increased nitric oxide metabolites in the urine and in the blood. There is something going on with nitric oxide, vasodilatation, and these compounds, whether it's a fruit juice or whether it is a honey. And I want to tie all this together because I think that there's a suggestion to be made here. There's a very compelling hypothesis that's coming out of all this work that some degree of the endothelial dysfunction that happens in insulin resistance may be due to nitric oxide inhibition, ENOS, endothelial nitric, ox nitric oxide synthase inhibition, et cetera. There's a connection between nitric oxide and insulin resistance, and it happens across multiple studies. And this is another one that I think really ties it together quite intriguingly. The title of this study is Citrulline and Non-Essential Amino Acids prevent fructose-induced non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in rats. So in rats and mice, if we overfeed or if we feed with fructose, you will see non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, also known as NAFLD. But if they supplement these rats with citrulline and non-essential amino acids, what they get is an improvement in arginine metabolism. 
Well, what does citrulline and arginine do in the human body? One of their biochemical roles is to be precursors for nitric oxide. So it appears that one of the mechanisms by which fructose may, in, may uh, induce a harmful, a pathological effect in humans at the level of the endothelium and perhaps at the level of the liver leading to NAFLD or endothelial dysfunction involves disordered nitric oxide metabolism, disordered ENOS, and this can be rescued if we affect nitric oxide metabolism positively, either by giving fructose with foods or as a part of a whole food matrix that probably has nitric oxide precursors and mitigate this effect, or we actually give the non-essential amino acids and citrulline, which are the precursors for nitric oxide. So read the conclusion here. In our rat model, citrulline and non-essential amino acids effectively prevented fructose-induced NAFLD on the basis of literature data and findings we proposed the non-essential amino acids may exert their effects specifically on the liver, where citrulline presumably acts at both the hepatic and whole body level, in part via improved peripheral arginine metabolism connected with nitric oxide. The last part is what I'm adding there. So you can find here a really compelling hypothesis to be generated connecting all of these things, connecting nitric oxide, connecting endothelial nitric oxide synthase, connecting endothelial dysfunction, connecting NAFLD, non-alcoholic body liver disease, and fructose in the absence of compounds that prevent this happening. But what we see repeatedly, fructose in a whole food matrix doesn't seem to behave the same way in humans. Incidentally, go back to the previous podcast I did with Malcolm Kendrick from a few years ago. We talked about atherosclerosis. What did we find? Endothelial dysfunction, ENOS, nitric oxide. These are at the center of atherosclerosis as well. What do we also know? Insulin resistance is at the center of atherosclerosis as well. That is what I believe causes atherosclerosis at the very, very, very beginning of all of it is not elevated LDL, is not elevated cholesterol. It is metabolic dysfunction, aka insulin resistance. And I believe that one of the key mechanisms by which that insulin resistance may be leading to atherosclerosis is by causing endothelial dysfunction. Endothelial dysfunction is really probably the first or second effect, the first or second um, really step in the process of atherosclerosis. I believe you must have endothelial dysfunction to have, to have atherosclerosis. Without endothelial dysfunction, I believe that LDL is not a problem for humans at all. It's a valuable molecule that moves steroid precursors, that moves hormones, that moves triglycerides and cholesterol around the body, that is involved in the immune response and interrupts quorum sensing from bacteria. Without endothelial dysfunction, LDL will not become a problematic molecule, will not become a part of an atherosclerotic plaque. This is why we don't get atherosclerosis in veins, but we only see it in arteries in a normal human individual because the arteries are a higher pressure system. And at the branch points, there is turbulence, which can create some endothelial dysfunction, some shredding, some shearing stress, and that creates the beginning of an atherosclerotic plaque. I think that what happens generally is that we must develop insulin resistance. Not that we want to develop insulin resistance, but a human must develop insulin resistance, AKA metabolic dysfunction for that endothelial dysfunction to persist and for that LDL to become wrapped up in an atherosclerotic plaque. Again, this is connected with nitric oxide synthase, endothelial cells, ENOS, et cetera. Fructose may contribute to this in isolation, but when we feed with foods in a food matrix, we see repeatedly that this does not happen. So this is connected with atherosclerosis. This is connected with insulin resistance. This is connected with metabolic dysfunction. And if you heard the podcast with Malcolm Kendrick, what we also talked about was that one of the effects of statins is to improve nitric oxide synthesis in the endothelium. In fact, this may be one of the most effective pleiotropic effects of statins. Statins do lower LDL by interrupting the enzyme HMG-CoA reductase, 
But what if the actual effect of statins, the actual protective benefit of statins in secondary prevention in people who have had a heart attack comes from improving nitric oxide synthesis at the level of the endothelium? That's fascinating. I don't believe it means we should always use statins. Look, if you're not going to make dietary changes, medications are all you got. But if it tells us what the statins are doing that is helpful, then we should understand the dietary interventions that we can do to improve endothelial health. And what do we know about those? Well, we know that citrine, citrulline, non-essential amino acids, arginine, endothelial nitric oxide synthase, nitric oxide precursors, these are critical for a healthy endothelium. I believe organs and meat are a huge part of that. Fruit is not going to hurt that, as we've seen in many of these studies, and in fact may actually improve it. So I do not think that it is worth it. I do not think it is correct to fear fructose in the food matrix. But a lot of people ask me, what about maple syrup? Well, think about it. Honey is better. The more raw it is, the darker it is, the less processed it is. Because the more you heat the honey, the more you degrade those nitric oxide precursors, the more you degrade the chemicals that are probably involved in the process of preserving ENOS activity. Maple syrup is collected and heated and heated and heated. Maple syrup is a pretty processed sugar in my view. So I'm not a fan of maple syrup in the same way that I am a fan of honey. I'm throwing in these little questions that I get all the time in here. And hopefully you guys are picking up what I am putting down. All right. One more thing to comment on, a couple more things to comment on before we move on from the fructose conversation. There is a very interesting meta-analysis that I will show you here. This is quite comprehensive. This is the effects of fruit and vegetable consumption on inflammatory biomarkers and immune cell populations, a, system, a systematic literature review and meta-analysis. For those watching, I will just go down to the titles so you can see these interventions and you can see the effects on the inflammatory biomarkers here. Now, interestingly, the majority of these are fruit interventions. There are very few quote unquote vegetable interventions. There's probably uh, maybe 30 or 40 trials here. It's quite a task to go through all of them and sort out which are fruit versus which are vegetables. But as you can see here, the majority of these are fruit interventions, and many of them have improvements or no negative effect on biomarkers. The fruit interventions are not universally improving biomarkers, but they do not seem to be worsening them, worsening them consistently or causing inflammation, which is my point in showing you this. Now, if you go down, there are some where they mix fruit and vegetables, and you can see that some of the interventions actually do increase interleukin-2. Some of them do increase CRP. The majority, though, either have no effect or improvements in inflammatory markers. If you want to go through these, you can. There's quite a lot of valuable data here if you parse out which are vegetables versus which are fruit interventions. But it's actually pretty hard to find a series of trials or a trial in which the only intervention was giving vegetables. If this podcast has been confusing to those of you so thus far, understand that while I started out in a carnivore diet perspective, eating meat and organs and fat, I transitioned to including some carbohydrates in my diet because of electrolyte issues, because of workouts, kind of like what Joe was describing in the podcast that got a little flat because of sleep disturbances and because of heart palpitations connected with those electrolyte issues. What we know is that the signaling of insulin, a molecule that often gets vilified, is critical at the level of the kidney for proper maintenance of electrolytes. Ketogenic diets are great short-term, but long-term, they will result in many, many problems for humans. The other thing I didn't mention was hormonal decline. My testosterone went down, came back up, now is seven or 800, including fruit and honey on my diet. I choose those as my sources of carbohydrates. Why? Because I think that if you think like a plant, if you consider what a plant is trying to do, it is going to put defense chemicals in the leaves 
it is going to put defense chemicals in the stems and it is certainly going to put defense chemicals in the roots or in the seeds, which are the plant babies. I am trying to get the smallest amount of plant defense chemicals in my diet because I want the most nutrients focusing on meat and organs and I want carbohydrates. So I'm going to get that from fruit. Fruit is the sweet part of the plant that a plant wants you to eat. As I've talked about thus far in the podcast, do not fear fructose in a plant matrix, in a food matrix. Do not eat fructose in isolation, however. So that is the reason that I included carbohydrates in my diet. I started with honey. I've done two podcasts now with the folks from NutriSense. I've worn continuous glucose monitors to show that my glucose response stays very quote unquote insulin sensitive. The area under the curve remains very low. I've done multiple fasting insulins, which remain very low, less than three C peptides, less than 0.5 HSCRP remains low. And I had a coronary artery calcium scan uh, about a year and a half ago, which was a big fat zero. So there was no calcium in my arteries on that scan, which is not perfect, but it was a pretty good uh, indicator. And at the time I had quote unquote elevated LDL, but remained insulin sensitive with a low fasting insulin, et cetera. So what I am saying here is that I'm wrapping it all together and telling you why I re-included carbohydrates in my diet. It's made a massive difference in sleep, mood, exercise performance, all of these things, electrolyte issues are non-existent now. All I have to do is use a sea salt in my diet in moderate amounts and my body doesn't have cramps. It doesn't have palpitations. I don't have the sleep issues. And like I said, my hormones are back to where they should be with an accompanying libido. Now eating raw testicle might have something to do with that. That's a topic for a later part of this conversation. As you guys know, I love raw organs and I get liver and heart and raw testicle. Um, if you can't get those, you can always get the desiccated stuff that we make at hardened soil, which is also some of the best stuff on the planet. So that is, I think, most of the fruit and fructose conversation that is worth having at this point. If you go deep down that rabbit hole, what you will find is, I think, consistent what I have with what I have described here, that almost essentially all of the time, there is no harm from including fruit in your diet, that it is going to improve endothelial function, et cetera, and that fructose in isolation appears harmful for humans. Therefore, I do not think you should include table sugar in your diet. And if you are going to include honey, it should be the good kind, not the kind in the plastic squeezy bears, et cetera. And I'm not a fan of maple syrup because it is heated and processed and likely going to have many of those precursors, which are important for maintaining the nitric oxide system in uh, that have been degraded. So think about all of these things. And again, this is all wrapped up in the framework of if you are thriving, do not change anything about your diet. This is all meant to be for those who are suffering, having autoimmune disease. And I think that in those cases in which people are not getting to the goals, that they are hoping to achieve, whether it's mood, emotional stability, mental clarity, libido, body composition, anything, athletic performance, we need to question our assumptions and continue thinking about this. And if I think about the optimal diet for humans, if I think about the foods that our ancestors sought first, it was always meat and organs together, animal fat. And then what was after that? Fruit and honey. Clearly, this has been documented in papers from Frank Marlowe with the Hadza. This is what I observed when I went to visit the Hadza uh, last year in Tanzania for two weeks. It's clear. They don't go looking for salads in the wilderness. They might eat leaves and seeds occasionally, and it's generally when their hunts are unsuccessful and they are avoiding starvation. So there's a clear hierarchy of foods for humans that are living in the wild, that are hunter-gatherers, and that is meat and organs, animal fat, honey, fruit, and then a distant fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth are things like roots, leaves, seeds. So why would you elevate things like seeds, leaves, roots, to the top of your diet with a salad and crowd out the more nutrient-rich foods, you're only going to be introducing more plant chemicals, more plant defense chemicals into your diet. And I think that chronically that is going to lead to lower 
vitality and lower health and possibly chronic issues, which people have a heck of a time deciphering because what we are all told is more vegetables, more vegetables, more vegetables. If you're sick, it's because you're not eating enough vegetables. And I would say it could be for many people that you are not eating enough vegetables. The last thing I'll say before I move on to the next topic is that in the podcast, Joe does say that he's thriving, that he feels great on an animal-based diet of meat, organs, and fruit, that his workouts are really good. And he notes, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing Joe now, I don't know if it's the exclusion of bread and pasta because those make me feel like garbage or the meat and the fruit and the organs. And I would say, well, Joe, it's probably both. <laughs> Definitely pasta and bread can be problematic for a lot of people. Remember, those are grains, those are seeds. And those have a lot of lectins, they can disrupt the gut, they can cause all sorts of issues. So I think that eliminating those is a huge thing for many people. In all fairness, Joe does go on to note, I don't feel bad, I'm paraphrasing Joe again, when I eat a salad. So I don't know, perhaps there is a chronic accumulation of these plant defense chemicals. I think Joe is right on the money there. I think that for many people, there is a chronic gradual accumulation of plant defense chemicals. For some people, this will never be an issue in your life and you can eat a salad all your life and never have a problem. But for those who are not thriving, for those who are having issues, I think it's important to turn over this stone and to realize that there is a hierarchy of plant of there's a hierarchy within plant foods and there's a hierarchy of foods overall. Again, meat, organs, animal fat at the top, followed by fruit and honey, and then things like tubers, seeds, leaves, way down at the bottom. If you're thriving and you want to eat a salad occasionally, great. It's probably not hurting you. Those low levels of compounds, your body's processing are just fine. But for those who are not thriving, I think this is an unturned overstone. This is a new stone that many people are missing. And this is in stark contradistinction to many longevity pundits today who are suggesting to eat a plant-based diet, to make those lower foods on the hierarchy the majority of your diet. I think that's the worst thing that you could do because then you will accelerate the accumulation and progression of many of these autoimmune diseases and problems. And you will crowd out the more nutrient-rich foods which allow you to thrive more deeply. If you really want to thrive, you need the micronutrients found, especially in organs, liver, heart, et cetera, testicle, whatever, and the nutrients found in muscle meat and the nutrients found in connective tissue, like scapula or trachea cartilage, or the nutrients found in bone broths. And you need to pair that with the nutrients found in uh, plant foods that are less toxic. And I think that is the formula for long-term success for humans. It's awesome to see the testimonials from our Animal Base 30 this month at Heart and Soil. This is coming out at the end of January, but it's not too late to join us. You can go to animalbase30.com. It's free. There's a free ebook. There's an infographic. The team at Heart and Soil Supplements is amazing. They will get you set up with all kinds of good information and help you thrive on this type of diet. But the things you see, the things I see, the testimonials are amazing. People are losing weight. They're feeling good. And yes, this could be the removal of processed foods in their diet. If an animal-based diet helps them do that, that is fantastic. More power to them. And they say things like, cutting out the vegetables, I really feel like my gastrointestinal tract is better. My gas bloating, constipation, et cetera, painful stools is way better. And that's a huge part of it because one of the first things these plant compounds do, I believe for humans is mess with our digestion, is inhibit digestion, is prevent the absorption of nutrients. So if you're eating a salad and you feel fine, like Joe, that's awesome. Keep doing it. If you run into problems, realize that those salad foods are not the most sought after foods by humans. They are much lower down the totem pole and eliminating them isn't going to be a negative because you will get all of the nutrients in those and more in the animal foods and the least toxic plant foods of fruit and honey. So hopefully that helps give some context around all of this and especially helps quell some of the fructose fear mongering. And I hope this gets forwarded to a lot of uh, ketogenic people who are very worried about fruit and fructose because this is a really important point. The last thing I'll add, and then I'm going to move on to a discussion of omega-3s is this. 
I got a message from someone on Instagram this morning who is losing weight successfully. This is a woman. I think she's already lost 40 or 50 pounds. And she said, I'm having trouble eating fruit because I get reactive hypoglycemia, meaning her blood sugar is going up and then kind of crashing. So there are a couple of things to consider here. A bunch of fruit, a bunch of honey may not work for everyone, depending where you are in your health journey. You may need time for your body to adjust your metabolism. Make sure you're getting other nutrient-rich foods. Number one, this woman is not eating organs. So I'm recommending to her that she get organs for the unique nutrients found in them, which will certainly improve blood sugar regulation and glycemic control. Number two, as equally important, most of the people who message me with this sort of a thing are including caffeine in their diet. Caffeine will sensitize humans to reactive hypoglycemia. If you have problems tolerating fruit or honey and you are eating caffeine or drinking caffeine, meaning if you're doing methylxanthines like chocolate or you're doing things like cacao or you're doing things like uh, coffee or even tea, this can worsen reactive hypoglycemia. So your choice. I would say this is yet another reason to eliminate methylxanthines like caffeine, theobromine, matine, and mate from your diet because I do not think those are good for humans long-term. I think they will mess up your overall metabolism and affect your ability to regulate blood sugars. When I eat fruit, as I've seen on my continuous glucose monitor, the blood sugar goes up, maybe 130, 140. It comes back down quickly. There's a very low area under the curve. I don't get reactive hypoglycemia. I don't drink coffee. I have not had coffee in probably 20 plus years of my life. I don't like it. I never will. I have no sources of methylxanthines in my diet. I don't like chocolate. I don't think it's good for humans. It's burnt seeds. Coffee is burnt seed water. You're all hating me now. You're turning off the podcast. I get it. Fine. Get triggered. I'm just telling you something that I think is important because I heard this this morning on my Instagram comments. So with that, I want to wrap up the discussion of fructose and fructose fear-mongering and remind you guys that fruit in a, in a food matrix, fructose looks pretty good for humans and it's delicious. And it's a very, I think, good thing to include in your diet, especially if you are keto, getting more of those carbohydrates will help with your electrolytes, et cetera. Let's move on to a discussion of omega-3 fatty acids. What I really want to dig into here is how valuable these are for us, where we can get them. Should we supplement with fish oil? What are the pros and the cons of that? And is it really true that fish oil is a panacea or is it possible that it's really not good for us at all? If there's one theme that has come up a lot for me over the last few months to year, it's been the dangers of nutritional reductionism and conflating isolated compounds with what we might find in animal or plant foods in a whole food matrix. I think that fish oil is actually a good example of this as well. If you listen to many popular nutrition pundits today, you may get the idea that you should be supplementing with tons of fish oil. In fact, you should buy a fish oil factory and make a hot tub of fish oil, according to some people, and you should just take a bath in that every single day. You should shower in fish oil and use fish oil on your hair or to clean your beard. Um, this is just all a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that many people in the health space seem to be saying that lots of fish oil is good. Gram, four grams, six grams, eight grams. I've heard of people taking massive amounts of fish oil, this being omega-3 enriched or high omega-3 oils, and touting this as a longevity hack, saying that, oh, you know, there are studies from Asian countries and people that live a long time have major... Um, intakes of these EPA and DHA, these omega-3 fatty acids. Therefore, we should take a purified, uh, separated from the food matrix fish oil. And I think this is bollocks. This is wrong. And this is dangerous. And I will tell you why. I want to start with a recent 
article or a, an editorial that summarized multiple articles from uh, an issue of JAMA, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is from March 16th, 2021. And I believe this one caused quite a stir as it, as it really should have, because if you look at this title, Omega-3 Fatty Acids and Atrial Fibrillation, it's a little scary. And if you read this short editorial, you'll find that there are multiple trials they state here, including the STRENGTH trial, 13,000 high-risk patients receiving four grams a day of omega-3 fatty acids, which is a combination of EPA and DHA, or corn oil as a placebo. Not excited about either of those things, but after a median of 42 months, no significant difference between the two randomized groups in the primary composite cardiovascular endpoint, showing that, well, fish oil was just as bad as corn oil, perhaps, but there was an increase in the risk of developing atrial fibrillation in the omega-3 fatty acids compared to the corn oil group, which was 2.2% versus 1.3%. The p-value was less than 0.001. There's a reduced trial of 8,000 participants that had a median follow-up of 4.9 years. And these same fish oils resulted in a 25% relative reduction in the primary composite cardiovascular endpoint compared to mineral oil. You wonder if the mineral oil was a bad thing or if the fish oils were potentially doing something good at the cardiovascular level, but there was a significant increase in atrial fibrillation. Again, the P was 0.003, um, 5.3 versus 3.9. In a third trial, OMEMI, 1,027 older patients found that there was, again, an increase in the rates of atrial fibrillation. The p-value was 0.06, perhaps not quite significant, um, but there was a, an increase versus corn oil. And the vital rhythm study published in this issue of JAMA, this uh, March 16th, 2021 issue of JAMA, 12,000 participants. After a median of 5.3 years, the incidence of atrial fibrillation was 7.2 per 1,000 persons in those taking omega-3 omega fatty acids, excuse me, versus 6.6 .6 per 1,000 in those taking the placebo. Uh, this p-value was not significant, but again, there was an increase. They say to consider together, the data from these four trials suggest, but do not prove there may be a dose-related risk of atrial fibrillation with omega-3 fatty acid intake. At a dose of four grams per day, there was a highly statistically significant increase in risk, nearly a doubling. With an intermediate dose of 1.8 grams per day, the, risk, uh, in the increase in risk did not achieve statistical significance. And with a standard daily dose of 840 milligrams per day, there was no apparent increase in risk, although the data were consistent with as much as a 24% increase in risk. So this is something to consider because there have been many people in the nutrition space uh, interviewing omega-3 fatty acid, quote unquote, experts or uh, proselytizers saying that four grams a day is completely normal. Perhaps eight grams a day would be better. And these doses have clearly been associated with increases in atrial fibrillation. So let's just be very clear from the beginning of this section of the podcast, fish oil is bullshit. Uh, I would never take fish oil. Fish oil is a combination of EPA, icosapentaenoic acid, docosahexaenoic acid. These are omega-3 polyunsaturated long-chain fatty acids, and they are highly susceptible to oxidation. Your body can get plenty of these from meat. I'll say it again. Your body can get plenty of these fatty acids from meat. This is very clear. You do not need to eat fish, much of which is high in heavy metals, to get these nor do you need to supplement with fish oil. So I want to just highlight a couple of things here, and then I will clarify my stance on fish. Long-chain omega-3 fatty acids in red meat. This is just a paper to corroborate the notion that meat contains DPA, docosapentaenoic acid, 
icosahexanoic acid and icosapentanoic acid. And I believe that there, you can go into more detail in this paper if you'd like. There certainly is a human need for these omega-3s in the diet, but I believe you can get absolutely plenty of these from animal fats. Things like tallow are just fine. Egg yolks would be an abundant source of these, though as you'll see in a moment, I have not been eating a lot of egg yolks in my diet. I get asked about fish a lot. Paul, why don't you ever talk about eating fish? The reason I don't talk about eating a lot of fish is because fish is full of heavy metals. And being a pescatarian is a sure and quick route to becoming heavy metal toxic. Tony Robbins, uh, Howard Stern, even Joe Rogan had elevated levels of arsenic that he's talked about on his podcast. So be aware that being a pescatarian, being a pesco-vegetarian, or including a lot of fish in your diet, <clears throat> you had better know what your heavy metal levels are of mercury, arsenic, lead, cadmium, et cetera. Even shellfish, which I do like. I like mussels. I like clams. I like oysters. I like shrimp. These are sometimes even worse because they are benthic, because they are bottom-dwelling organisms, and they're going to have quite high levels of heavy metals. So I do not eat a lot of fish. In fact, I can't remember the last time I ate fish, even though I live in Costa Rica. I may have had shrimp once in the last year, and I certainly have not had salmon maybe in a few years. This is not to say that those foods cannot be a part of a healthy diet, but be aware that the more you eat them, the more you will need to check your heavy metal status and basing your dietary fats or your dietary proteins around them, I think is a recipe for disaster. As I said, you can get plenty of omega-3 fatty acids from animal meat and animal fat. And this is critical point. If you are not eating seed oils, if you are not eating omega-6s like linoleic acid, if they are low in your diet, then your body can make EPA DPA and DHA from the alpha linolenic acid, the ALA, which is found in tallow and animal fat. I'm going to show you my results from a little over a year ago that illustrate that very well. Before I do, I want to show you an article, which I think is quite interesting. We know that vegetarian diets pretty low in essential fatty acids. The title of this part paper is Achieving Optimal Essential Fatty Acid Studies in Vegetarians. Current knowledge and practical implications. I'll summarize it for you. It's really hard for vegetarians to get essential fatty acids. You probably should just eat some meat or some tallow uh, and do that. This is basically what we're saying here because, as we know, in many vegetarians or in people uh, generally in the population, what you will find is that the conversion of ALA to EPA and DHA is really low, actually. And that is because they are overloading their system with omega 6s, yet another problem with excess omega 6s like linoleic acid in the human diet. I want to show you guys who are watching on YouTube this pathway. I've done this many times. You can see that the um, omega-6s are on this side. The omega-3s are on this side. You start with ALA, alpha-linolenic acid. You have EPA and DHA here. DPA is here, docosapentanoic acid. That's another important one. Linoleic acid, this is the, the big one that I worry about. Uh, 18 carbon, omega-6, polyunsaturated fatty acid. And you can see that they share desaturase, elongase, desaturase, elongase, elongase, beta oxidation. And this is an important thing because the more of these omega-6s you have in your diet, the less your body will be able to take this ALA, which is also present in tallow and animal fat, and convert that into DPA and uh, EPA and DHA, which I think is a really important thing. So in vegetarians, in people in the general population, the conversion of ALA into DPA, EPA, and DHA is pretty bad, but in those of us eating an animal-based diet, it's probably just fine. 
because you are not overloading your body with omega-6s. This is my nutri valve from Genova. Uh, I believe this is from August of 2021. You can see that my ALA is moderate, but that my DPA and my DHA are great. And my EPA is quite high. At the time I was doing this, I was not even eating eggs, guys. The only source of fat in my diet is animal fat, things like tallow, high stearic acid tallow, either from fire starter, like we make it hard and soil supplements or from fatty steaks or hamburgers, this kind of thing. I wasn't eating the egg yolks and I certainly wasn't eating fish and nor was I supplementing with a fatty acid fish oil supplement. So where am I getting these things from? Well, there's some EPA, there's some DHA and there's some DPA in meat. And my body is probably converting a lot of this ALA into this EPA, which is quite high because my linoleic acid, as you'll see over here is quite low because I don't include seed oils etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I'll also point out that my stearic acid was quite high because I do have a lot of that in my diet. I eat a lot of tallow. I've done many talks in the past about the importance of this 18 carbon saturated fatty acid in the human diet, the way that it turns on mitochondria. And you'll note that my palmitic acid is quite low. This has been a marker in the past for some degree of insulin resistance in humans. It's a little more complicated than that, but I just want to point out my fatty acid analysis from Carnivore MD. I like showing you guys my labs from time to time. And to illustrate that, if you do not have excess omega-6 in your diet, do not have seed oils. In fact, I would argue, potentially as humans, we should be thinking about this ratio. We should be optimizing stearic acid and minimizing linoleic acid in the human diet as much as possible. For me, that has actually translated into limited consumption of eggs because I'm trying to be the astronaut. I'm trying to optimize. I'm trying to tell you guys what works and what doesn't work, or at least experience it and tell you about it. And the reason I don't eat a lot of eggs is because most eggs are fed corn and soy. I get this question a lot. This doesn't mean you can't eat eggs, but for me at what I would consider, like I'm just out there, the pirate, I'm sailing the seas, I'm the astronaut, I'm exploring. I don't think that a lot of chickens make the cut for what I want to eat. Um, I've been doing a lot of social media stuff. So I'll refer to myself in the third person sometime in a tongue in cheek way. I'm kind of joking, but carnivore MD doesn't want to eat eggs because they're fed corn and soy. And we know through experiments and through literature that if you feed chickens other things, their linoleic acid in the eggs will be lower. So I don't want a ton of linoleic acid in eggs. I don't think I'm getting anything. I don't think I'm missing anything, excuse me, in eggs that I can't get in raw liver, choline, vitamin A, et cetera. Um, if you're not eating liver, eggs are probably a good source of those things, but um, I would be careful about the absolute amount of linoleic acid in your diet. I think this is a problematic fatty acid for humans. I think it accumulates in our cell membranes as we know polyunsaturated fatty acids do. I think it takes a long time to get out. And I think it can change the way our mitochondria and our cell membranes work, affecting fatty, uh, fatty tissue signaling, specifically, I think breaking signaling at the level of the adipocytes, leading to constant leak of non-esterified fatty acids from the adipocytes, leading to systemic insulin resistance. This is metabolic dysfunction in a nutshell. If that went over your head, don't worry about it. I just wanted to throw it in there, but that I think is the mechanism by which seed oils break human metabolism. I'm going back to Austin soon. I'm going to do another podcast with Nick Byer, and we're going to talk about seed oils. And maybe I'll throw that one on the fundamental health podcast. If you guys want a new updated dive into why these are problematic, these are corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, peanut, grapeseed, et cetera. Do not eat them. Do not eat those nuts. Do not eat those seeds. And think about the fact that if you are struggling with weight, you may want to really understand the linoleic acid to stearic acid ratio in your diet, meaning minimize linoleic acid. And for me, this has meant even not eating eggs, 
Um, and not eating a lot of bacon. In fact, I don't eat any bacon anymore or pork because pork and chicken are fed corn and soy. These are monogastric animals like humans that accumulate polyunsaturated fatty acids in our fatty tissues. And bacon is a good source of linoleic acid for humans, which is, I mean, a, I mean, a large source, not a good positive source, but a large source of linoleic acid for humans, which can be problematic. Whether you're getting linoleic acid from seed oils or you're getting it from bacon, it may perform the same in the human body. And if we uh, agree, if we subscribe to the hypothesis that metabolites of these fatty acids are problematic for humans, then we can run into a problem with that in a big way. So be careful about that. That is one reason I don't eat a lot of pork. I don't eat a lot of chicken fat and, uh, I don't eat a lot of eggs anymore. And I told you why I don't eat a lot of fish. So my diet often consists of organs from beef, grass fed, grass finished, regenerative meat, fruit, honey, et cetera, et cetera. Just one more thing before I move on from the omega threes, a paper lipid peroxidation during uh, omega-3 fatty acid and vitamin E supplementation in humans. If you did not know, uh, fish oil can oxidize as well. These results demonstrate that supplementing the diet with omega-3 fatty acids resulted in an increase in lipid peroxidation. Ooh, that's bad. As measured by plasma MDA, which is malondialdehyde release and lipid peroxide products, which was not suppressed by vitamin E supplementation. Do you still think eating four grams, consuming four grams of fish oil a day is good? I hope not. I did a podcast with my friend, Sivan Matosian, oh, a few months ago, and I told him during the podcast, I'm not a fan of fish oil. And literally in the middle of the podcast, he calls out to his wife and says, hey, don't give the kids the fish oil this morning. That's right, Sivan. Don't give your kids fish oil. Just give your kids healthy fat from meat and organs. They will be great. If you've ever had heart, you'll know heart is a great source of fat. There's all this pericardial fat around the heart that's what you need. That's going to be fine. I am not convinced by the hypothesis that humans evolved as semi-aquatic organisms or that fish were a key part of our evolution. There are plenty of people all over the world, whether it's Native Americans, the Hadza, et cetera, who have essentially no seafood in the diet. If you're wondering about iodine, guess what? Meat has iodine as well. Dairy has iodine and egg yolks have iodine. So you don't even need fish for iodine uh, as a human. If you want to include it, be careful of the heavy metals. Again, I'm giving you the high level. My intention is never to make the diet so restrictive or never to make a recommendation that is so restrictive that you can't do it anymore, but I will try and always be honest with you. I will tell you where my ideas are evolving. Uh, most of these have been consistent over the last number of years. And um, it is important to consider the fact that um, these are the recommendations that I think are ideal. And I wanna give you guys a perspective on that so that you can aim for those and not get confused and then do the best you can within that framework. Again, I will reiterate one more time. If you are not thriving, then you should question your assumptions. If you are thriving, kicking ass in all the ways, don't change a thing about your diet. All right, uh, for the last section of this Ask Me Anything podcast, this sort of uh, monologue, I want to address concerns about nutrient adequacy on an animal-based diet. Earlier this month, Joe Rogan did post on his Instagram, hey, I'm doing meat and fruit this month, as we heard on the podcast with Ben Patrick, as I talked about earlier in this episode, he's thriving, his workouts are good, he feels really good on this diet. Um, one of the comments that stuck out for me in that, uh, in that post he did was, someone said, hey, if you put this diet into chronometer, and I guess this person was probably just putting ribeye steak and fruit into chronometer, it has deficiencies in these things. And I wanted to talk about why many of those were incorrect and talk about the potential or non- problematic nature of an animal-based diet for nutrient deficiencies and the nutrient adequacy of an animal-based diet, which I think is exemplary in so many ways. So let's move on to that one as we continue this 
rambling adventure exploration podcast. Okay, so if we consider nutrients on an animal-based diet, now to define, this is a diet consisting of organs, meat, fruit, honey, raw dairy, plus or minus, depending if you tolerate it. I'm a fan of dairy. In the past, I had issues with dairy. This time when I reincorporated exclusively raw dairy, raw goat and raw cow, I have not had recurrence of eczema. I feel really good. I've mentioned a few times on social media that I actually feel more, it's hard to describe. I feel more resilient in the ocean. I surf for longer and I don't get tired as much. I end up surfing for a very long time in the ocean since I've eaten calcium. I don't know if it's just an association, but if you heard the podcast I did with Sally Norton, there are many benefits to having calcium in your gut, including decreased oxalates. And there are many studies showing at least associations between increased calcium consumption and decreased levels of gastrointestinal cancer. So I think that humans need calcium. We definitely recycle bone. We turn over bone. We lose calcium in our urine and our sweat. We need to have a calcium source in our diet. I have never seen anything convincing to suggest that calcium in the diet leads to calcification of the arteries. Those are separate processes. You always have calcium in your body. Eating calcium, eating calcium does not go to your arteries. That is false. I would not take a calcium supplement. I would not take calcium carbonate, which is a rock. It is essentially chalk. I would get calcium in your diet. And if you can't do calcium from raw dairy, you could consider something like bone matrix, which is a microcrystalline hydroxyapatite bone supplement from hardened soil. Those are the two sources I would recommend for calcium. But this is an animal-based diet, meat, organs, fruit, honey, raw dairy, plus or minus, including bone meal. So the criticism of this diet in the comments said, that diet is going to be deficient in many things, including calcium, omega-3, vitamin K1, uh, I believe it also said thiamine and perhaps something else. But I wanted to go through many of the common nutrients that people are worried about on this type of diet and discuss why these are not an issue. On my Instagram this week, I talked about magnesium. Let's start with magnesium. If you are trying to get your recommended daily allowance for magnesium, which is around 300 milligrams for women per day and 400 milligrams for men, good luck. Because you would have to eat half a pound of peanut butter five to six ounces of dark chocolate. And the problem with plant sources, those are the best plant sources of magnesium. The problem with plant sources of magnesium is that though that may be the raw amount of magnesium in those plants, that is certainly not the amount of magnesium that you will absorb. And the RDAs don't really account for this. They account for what you are taking in your body. They're not going to account for the bioavailability. I can tell you when I was a vegan, I was eating tons of almonds and I had the lowest magnesium I've ever had in my life to the point that I had issues associated with low magnesium because almonds are a shitty source of magnesium because it's bound, it's chelated, it's uh, in phytic acid and oxalates. So divalent cations, magnesium, calcium, zinc, selenium, these are very poorly bioavailable in nuts and seeds or beans. Don't anyone convince you that minerals are a good thing to get from nuts, seeds, and beans. They're a horrible thing to get. That's really way to, a really bad way to get those things because they are very poorly bioavailable. There's none that there's very little, excuse me, that's going to get absorbed because of the phytic acid and the oxalates in those foods. So what's the best source of magnesium? The best source of magnesium, in my opinion, is meat. There's about 150 milligrams per pound. Uh, you could easily get to the RDA by eating a pound or a pound and a half uh, plus milk, which is going to have magnesium plus any other foods in your diet. You'll get close. Or let's just imagine that that Magnesium is much more bioavailable. You don't see magnesium deficiency on animal-based diets. It's a falsehood. Let's just frame this whole conversation with the fact that the USDA 
uh, database is what's used for these. It's updated every year. The, they're currently using the USDA 21, but if you look at the USDA um, version from 2021, a lot of these things have not been tested in foods since 2003 or 2007. So we'll get to that when we come to thymine, but it's important to consider that the considerations here are very poor often um, in these mineral analyses. But if you look at it, meat has a good amount of magnesium. It's much more bioavailable than other uh, plant foods. That is the end of the story. It's much more about how much magnesium you are retaining than how much magnesium you are getting if you are eating a non-processed food diet. And I think an animal-based diet is the best source of magnesium. You do not need to supplement and you do not need to take electrolytes with magnesium. You just need to include those foods in your diet and avoid the foods that will rob you of magnesium. This is why an animal-based diet is beneficial in my opinion. Seeds, nuts, grains, and beans will rob you of minerals and deplete you of minerals in your diet. So if you're getting magnesium from meat and you're eating it with beans or you're eating it with nuts, well, you can kiss some of that magnesium goodbye. So this is why I'm such a fan of an animal-based diet. Let's move on to calcium. Obviously, whoever made this comment didn't understand that an animal-based diet could include bone matrix, could include microcrystalline hydroxyapatite, could include raw dairy. That's a great source of calcium. That one is really something silly that we shouldn't even focus on. Omega-3, I talked about that earlier in this podcast, so we don't really need to talk about omega-3, but look, there's plenty of omega-3 in an animal-based diet. Criticisms of this type of diet have been uh, vitamin E in the past. Although I will tell you, this is one place where I think the USDA database is very wrong and needs to be recalculated. I don't know that anyone has ever looked at the amount of vitamin E in animal fat, but it must be very high. When I have checked my vitamin E levels and my client's vitamin E levels on an animal-based diet, vitamin E is at the upper range of normal, sometimes even above that upper range of normal. So it's very clear that people are not getting vitamin E deficient eating animal fat. And why would they? Animal fat is going to contain a fat-soluble vitamin like vitamin E. I also wish someone would do an analysis of animal fat for vitamin K2, because I think that uh, beef tallow probably is much higher in K2 than we believe it to be. While I'm on the topic of vitamin K, plural, Ks, um, often people will say, oh, an animal-based diet is deficient in vitamin K1. Well, guess what? The human body is very good at retro-converting vitamin K2 to vitamin K1. I remember when I went on the doctor's TV show, they said this type of diet, they were referring to a carnivore diet, is deficient in vitamin K. And it just really struck me that they had no idea that there was a difference between vitamin K1 and K2. And more importantly, that vitamin K2, the spectrum of metaquinone, specifically MK4 is probably the most bioactive one, have been associated, again, this, this is an epidemiology uh, association in the Rotterdam study with significantly decreased rates of cardiovascular disease and calcific aortic sclerosis. I'll show that study in a moment, but it's very striking because where do you get vitamin K2? You almost exclusively get vitamin K2 from animal foods. Yes, you can get vitamin K2 from fermented natto, which is soybeans, but it's not from the soybeans, it's from the bacteria that are fermenting the soybeans. So the bacteria will make vitamin K2, but the best way to get vitamin K2 is things like liver or egg yolks. That is where you get this nutrient that is critical, that is crucial for cardiovascular health. People never talk about that important fact that often meat and organs or animal fats are vilified as associated with cardiovascular disease, but, but this is very important. Where are you getting the nutrients that are then associated with improvements in cardiovascular disease from animal foods? So do we think it's possible that the epidemiology studies, that these observational studies are perhaps confounded, that some of the people who are eating animal foods are also doing other bad things? This is called an unhealthy user bias because meat has been associated with rebellion for the last 70 years in Western cultures. And if you look at Eastern epidemiology observational studies, you will find that 
large studies, over 220,000 people across Asia, the more red meat people eat, the, the lower the rates of heart disease were in, in men and the lower the rates of breast cancer were in women. So epidemiology often reflects behaviors that are associated with socioeconomic status. In the United States, people that eat more meat are often more rebellious. In Asia, meat is associated with affluence. That is why we see those associations with epidemiology. And that is the danger of epidemiology. It's not really telling us about the meat per se. It's telling us about the behaviors that go along with it. So don't smoke, don't drink, don't ride motorcycles, get your regular health checkups and eat your red meat and organs to get your vitamin K2, which is associated with incredibly beneficial outcomes in the Rotterdam study. This study is so impactful that I want to show it to you. But before I do this, I want to also comment that the retroconversion of K2 to K1 is great. K1 to K2, not so good. If you look in the Rotterdam study, there is no association between vitamin K1 intake, this is plant form of vitamin K, phyloquinone versus metaquinones in animal foods. There's no association between phyloquinones and cardiovascular outcomes. So vegans, vegetarians are kind of off a creek here. Anyone suggesting a plant-based diet, where are you getting your vitamin K2, which is clearly associated with good outcomes? Now, it's epidemiology. Can we think, can we suspect any healthy user bias or unhealthy user bias here? I think in the case of the Rotterdam study, it doesn't make a lot of sense. What else might people who are eating K2 be doing that's going to be so beneficial for their heart? Well, clearly they're eating meat. These are the same people who probably don't have as many health behaviors, but still they're benefiting from vitamin K2. This is why we generate the hypotheses with observational research, and we have to consider what might these people be doing? Are they going to have associated unhealthy or healthy behaviors? And in this case, it's pretty hard to make a case that I don't know what other hypothesis you could come up with that might be accounting for the improvement that is accompanying the animal foods the improvement in outcomes that is accompanying the animal foods from their lifestyle, but it's open to interpretation. I think it's pretty clear in this case though, that it's the vitamin K2 in their animal foods that is very beneficial for them. K1 doesn't do diddly. I wanna show you guys this study for those watching since it's so important. The dietary intake of menaquinone is associated with a reduced risk of coronary heart disease. The Rotterdam study, this is one of my favorites. You can read the abstract here. If you're watching, you can look at the graphics. We made the results graphics into tables for my book, The Carnivore Code. They're not as easy to see here, but if you go to the book, maybe I'll show you the graphics from The Carnivore Code that illustrate this a little bit more easily in one moment, but you will see that these next graphics that are coming from my book clearly show this. It's quite striking. So here we go. Rotterdam coronary heart disease mortality, 4,807 Dutch people followed from 1990 to 1993 to 2000. Phyloquinone, K1 intake was not related to any outcome, but increasing levels of K2 in the diet were associated with better cardiac outcomes. The tertiles, less than 21 micrograms of K2 per day, 21 to 32, greater than 32, more K2, less coronary heart disease mortality. What if they'd had a fourth or a fifth? What if they'd had quartiles or quintiles? I can't even imagine how low this relative risk hazard ratio would have been. 32 micrograms a day of K2 is easily obtainable from moderate amounts of meat, organs, things like liver, egg yolks. Most of us in an animal-based world are probably getting over 100 micrograms of K2 per day. Uh, that's gotta be protective in many ways. So what other nutrients are sometimes thought of as problematic on a, an animal-based diet? Well, folate is considered, but you know what? <laughs> eating liver fixes that immediately. You can get plenty of folate eating liver, no problem, uh, no stress. What about riboflavin? Riboflavin is actually only really present in significant amounts in organs, heart and liver, are absolutely the best places to get riboflavin. If you are not eating organs, you are probably not getting enough riboflavin. So riboflavin is not something that people have a deficiency of on animal-based diet. 
thymine is one that comes up a lot. And this is where I think the USDA database is probably wrong because we never, and I mean never, see cases of beriberi or Wernicke's encephalopathy or any clinical evidence of thymine deficiency or laboratory evidence. Thymine is a little bit tricky to assay on the labs. You can look at organic acids testing, look at branch chain ketoacid dehydrogenase products, um, but you just don't see it with people on animal-based diets. You don't see clinical evidence from organic acids testing or from erythrocytes transketolase, any of these assays that thymine is deficient on an animal-based diet. I think that there's probably a problem with the assay here. Why would pork have thymine, but beef not have thymine. It's probably in most of the cells of your body, especially the liver cells. My suspicion is that liver is much richer in thymine than we've been led to believe. And I would love to see that one redone by the USDA. I do not fear thymine deficiency from beef. There's no reason that beef would be deficient in thymine, but pork would be so high. If you're really worried, you can eat pork, which is a great source of thymine. But remember that a lot of these B vitamins are heat labile. So you're going to denature some of them when you cook them, I'm not recommending uncooked pork but just something to think about. So thymine, I think, is another perspective that people are worried about. And again, these chronometer programs, the USDA databases, they're only as good as the assays are based. And I think we're now just beginning to learn there's a lot more nuance to these nutrients than we think of. Manganese is another one like this. There's a moderate amount of manganese in liver, but people will say, oh, you're not getting enough manganese. Well, guess what? Manganese is another one of these cations that is very poorly bioavailable in nuts and seeds. So you're not going to get much of that from those foods either. You just don't see manganese deficiencies on these diets. I think that probably some of this is artifact based on incomplete records in the USDA database. Again, there's plenty of manganese, I believe, for humans in organs. The last one is, well, another one is boron. Boron is a mineral that's found in bone. So it's going to be in our bone matrix supplement from hardened soil. It's a little bit found in liver. It's also going to be found in things like avocado is a good source on an animal-based diet. So it's easy to get plenty of boron if you're worried about that one. So let's keep going down the list. We've pretty much covered almost all of it. Vitamin C, obviously, if you're eating fruit, you're getting plenty of vitamin C in your diet. There's also vitamin C in spleen and organs, depending what you want to compose your diet of. Uh, further down, selenium. There's tons of selenium that's much more bioavailable in animal foods than it is in plant foods. We talked about vitamin E, vitamin A, obviously liver is a great source of that. The only one that I perhaps haven't covered is potassium. Potassium story is kind of like the magnesium story. There's a good amount of potassium in fruit. If you're eating bananas or papaya, you're not gonna be missing potassium. It's also about how much potassium you retain rather than how much you eat. If you're not eating a processed food diet, there's a good amount of potassium in meat. Again, if you're eating foods, this is the most important part of this section of the podcast. Foods that we have been told are good for us. Nuts, seeds, grains, and legumes are containing compounds, phytic acid and oxalates, which will chelate and rob your body of minerals in the gut. They will deplete you of minerals. If you think you are getting any of these divalent cations, selenium, zinc, calcium, manganese, magnesium, et cetera, iron, these are going to be depleted from your gut with the chelating compounds in these plants. That is a big, big problem. Nobody worries about an iron deficiency on animal-based diet because you have lots of heme iron, which is a very good thing. As I've said in the past, and I believe I talked about this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, if I didn't, I will reiterate it here. I do not worry about iron overload. Occasionally people do get hemochromatosis. You wouldn't know if you had a genetic defect or a genetic polymorphism, or you should check your iron saturation should be low. It should not be above 50%. It probably shouldn't be anything near 50%. Check your ferritin. But generally speaking on animal-based diets, we do not see elevated levels of GGT, uh, gamma glutamyl transferase. We do not see elevated levels of oxidative stress, which might accompany any resulting oxidative stress from excess iron. So I think this is again, another fallacy 
associated with these things. And I do not see the benefit from being slightly anemic in your life. There are some pundits out there right now sort of touting or celebrating the fact that they are borderline anemic. Well, it doesn't sound like a good way to live your life to me if you do anything that's cardiovascular. I think that's really just a clear indication that you need more heme iron, which is found in meat and organs. So let's think about this question. Why would you eat vegetables in the first place? If you answered vitamins and minerals, I'm going to say no. You can get all of those vitamins and minerals that we just talked about in much higher amounts, in much more bioavailable forms, in animal meat, animal organs, and some fruit to accompany that. So if you're eating vegetables for vitamins and minerals, you're making the wrong decision. <laughs> There's no point in doing that. If you are eating vegetables because of phytochemicals, then we get into this interesting discussion of xenohormesis and whether or not this is an important thing. This came up on Rogan with Ben Patrick as well. I'm looking forward, hopefully at some point, to having more conversations with him and more conversations in the space. As I said, I've invited David Sinclair back on this podcast. I don't know if he's going to accept the invitation, um, but I would love to have some debate with either him or Rhonda Patrick regarding xenohormesis and my views versus their views. But think about this perspective. In the podcast with Ben Patrick, Joe actually describes this well. And the perspective that he says is that some people believe that these compounds in plants are like going in a sauna. They give you this hormetic effect. And I thought, yeah, that's a great way to say it because in fact, going in a sauna, I think gives you this hormesis effect. You can get increased levels of oxidative stress in your body, which will trigger your NRF2 system and glutathione, okay? Um, easily from living well, from exercise, from sunlight, from fasting, from heat and from cold. So you can get these exact same things. You can replicate the effects of plant chemicals with these behaviors. Why are these behaviors better? Because they don't have the side effects of the plant chemicals. This is what everyone is missing. This is what Rhonda Patrick is missing. This is what David Sinclair is missing. These plant molecules that may trigger pharmacological effects in the human body also have side effects that people are ignoring. I've talked about this ad infinitum, ad nauseum, but I will add it one more time. We must not forget the side effects of these plant molecules. Why would you use a molecule with a redundant benefit when it's going to cause a side effect in a human? In the case of curcumin, in the case of resveratrol, in the case of quercetin, in the case of whatever plant molecule du jour you want to believe you should be taking every day because it's going to extend your life, I guarantee you I can find literature for you that shows that it has potentially negative side effects and that its benefits are redundant. That you're already getting those benefits and it's very hard for anyone to make an argument against this statement. You really can't prove these molecules do anything above and beyond what you are going to get in your daily life if you are doing sauna, cold plunge, exercise, sunlight, all these good things, maybe fasting, intermittent fasting. Like prove to me, this is what I would say, prove to me that these molecules give you a benefit above and beyond that because they definitely have side effects that are often ignored. They're definitely having a detriment and their benefits better be more than their detriment. If you look at my labs, for instance, there's no evidence of oxidative stress that's out of the ordinary. Like I have very low levels of oxidative stress. You can measure it with things like F2 isoprostanes or correlates with HSCRP, et cetera. Or you can look at ApoB, uh, oxidized phospholipids on ApoB. They're all normal. So where is where where am I missing all these benefits from plant compounds? Where are we missing these benefits from plant compounds in our animal-based diet? This is the argument. I think that there is a net negative to these compounds. There's no clear benefit above and beyond what you can get from already doing things like sauna, from already living your life well. And what you're going to avoid is all the negative effects of these plant compounds, which are clear. They are digestive enzyme inhibitors. They are endocrine disruptors, which is hormonal disruptors. They are going to deplete you of nutrients. They are going to potentially damage the gut like lectins. All of these come packaged together and they are problematic. In the case of resveratrol, 
That is a xenoestrogen in many ways. It is going to, it is a phytoestrogen like quercetin. It could be a hormonal disruptor in some people. So why are you doing that? Why would you take resveratrol for instance? Well, you might take it because you wanted to activate the sirtuin genes for longevity. Well, guess what? Fasting does the same thing. Heat does the same thing. Cold does the same thing. You can get all of these genes activated by exercising, by doing these things. And if you fear mTOR, you shouldn't because a mammalian target of rapamycin is critically important for your muscles, for your vitality, for your longevity, for your stability, for your libido. And if you listen to the podcast I did last week or uh, in which I talked about, there was a post I did this week on Instagram on intermittent fasting. There was a study with a six-hour intermittent fasting window. And those people over four days saw improvements in autophagy genes in the morning, but they also saw an increase an increase in mTOR at night when they were fasting. So there's so much mTOR fear-mongering happening now. And it's usually coming from people that are kind of skinny fat. I'm just going to say it. They don't have muscles because guess what? Exercise, lifting weights triggers mTOR. And you don't want to do that according to them. So this whole thing is just kind of crazy. And I don't think there's really a strong argument to be made for these plant chemicals in the human diet. They're redundant and do not forget about the side effects. You can choose a plant molecule, you can research it well, and you will find side effects that could potentially be harmful for humans and potentially at the root of autoimmune illness and chronic disease for many people. Again, here is the framework. If you are thriving, change nothing about your diet. If you can eat a salad, if you can eat some of these plant molecules and doesn't bother you, no big deal. But if you're farting, if you've got bloating, if you've got gas, if you've got autoimmune disease, if you've got skin issues like I used to have, if you've got mood issues, if you've got sleep issues, if you've got body comp issues, you might want to think about questioning those assumptions that you've based all this on. And maybe you can refine your diet and focus more on the foods that are most sought after by humans. Your goal as a human, if you truly want to be healthy, is to get the most nutrient-rich foods that are the lowest in toxins. And I believe there's a real clear hierarchy there. At the top, say it with me, organs, meat, animal fat, fruit, honey. Those are the most sought after foods, the most nutrient rich foods that are the least defended, the least toxins. That is a recipe for optimal thriving health for the vast majority of humans on this planet. Every once in a while, somebody asks me, what do you think? Are people different? Are there some people that could be vegans? Are there some people that will ideally eat an animal-based diet? Some people eat a pescatarian diet? And I think, no, I don't think so. Most of us, in fact, all of us listening to this, maybe there's some canines, we're homo sapiens and our genetics are the same. Our biochemistry is the same. The way we use nutrients, the way we, the way we interconvert nutrients, our folate cycle, our biochemistry, it is the same. The immunology at the level of our gut, it is the same. Lectins are harmful for people, period. Nutrients are depleted by phytic acid and oxalates, period. You can get more nutrients on an animal-based diet, period. It's very simple. I think that humans in general will thrive on this diet. Some people might like different foods more than others. Some people may not tolerate certain foods. Some people may not like dairy. Some people may tolerate raw dairy, great. But this is the nuance overlying sort of the base level. And the base level is these are the most sought after foods for humans, by humans throughout our evolution. These are the foods we should be seeking. These are the foods we should be prioritizing if we truly wish to thrive. You will not become nutrient deficient eating an animal-based diet. What you will do is quickly become more educated than your doctor, and you'll be able to tell them about all of the important nutrients you are getting on this diet that are not on a plant-based diet, which is another thing that is often left out of these conversations. Someone please tell me where on a plant-based diet you get creatine, choline, carnitine, anserine, taurine, K2, B12, folate, biotin. Maybe you get folate, but not a lot of biotin, not a lot of riboflavin, where are you going to get these things on a plant-based diet? Where? I'm waiting. 
These are critical for optimal health for humans. They're found in animal foods. Why would these foods that allow us to thrive also be killing us, also be shortening our lives? It doesn't make any sense. And there's not really good research to support it. There's just too much happening in the space now that I think is bad information. That's what I am trying to combat with this podcast. And that's what we're trying to combat at Heart and Soil. Like I said, organs are critical. If you need desiccated organs, check us out, heartandsoil.co. Fresh organs are always best, but not everybody can get them all the time. All right, guys, this is the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one. I'll keep doing these AMAs as long as people find them valuable. But thanks to Joe and Penn Patrick for the shout out on that episode. If you haven't listened to that one, go check it out. And exciting things happening at Heart and Soil soon. We have some collaborations with some superstars you guys will be hearing about in the very near future. And hopefully we will have her package back in the store very soon. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. looks like you can leave me a review on Spotify as well. That's how we spread the word. That's how we get more people to really wake up, to become red-pilled, to be explorers with us, to become truth seekers with us. That's what we're looking for. I'm not afraid to be wrong. I just want to know what the truth is. I've changed my mind on things over time. I'll always be honest with you guys and tell you what I'm thinking. And this is how we do it. We evolve. We explore. We journey, we adventure. This is what it's about. Thank you guys for joining me on this episode. Stay radical.